You're listening to audio from the Regenerate Podcast, a ministry of River City Church in Lewiston, Idaho. For more information about Regenerate, visit rivercitychurch.us. All right. I love it. I love it. I love it. Everybody, all right, go, uh, go ahead and take a seat. Um, just in like these first three rows. There's not too many of us tonight. How's everybody doing tonight? Yeah. We having fun so far? Awesome. I think everybody knows me, but my name is Sam. I'm the college ministry director from River City Church, changing the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Here at Regenerate, we are about making disciples, okay? I'm really excited to, uh, we had at least one person fill out a volunteer leadership application. If you're interested in leading in Regenerate, we would love to have you on our team. Uh, um, There's a lot of great things that I feel like just in praying about it, that God's going to be doing a lot of leadership development. And so we want to participate with him in that and just helping people to learn what it means to make disciples. And so if you're interested in that, talk with me afterwards. Tonight, we're going to talk about the salvation of God. Somebody say salvation. Salvation. We're going to be back in Titus chapter 3, and we're going to be starting in verse 5. I'm going to talk to you, first of all, a little bit of sociology. I was doing some research um, uh, prior to this. So, um, and I was, uh, this really is really an interesting passage of scripture. Right, we've been reading in the book of Titus how Paul has been instructing Titus, who's a young pastor in Crete, and he says, I want, you to, I want you to set up elders in every town. I want you to shut down false doctrine. I want you to teach old men how to, how to, how to be uh, reverential in their behavior. I want you to teach young men. <laughs> I want to teach them to have self-control. I want you to teach older women how to teach younger women so that they can all grow up in reverence and respect and honor and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, underlying all this is the fact that Titus is a young leader. And he's like, uh, and I, personally, when I read this, and I'm thinking if I put myself in Titus' shoes, that's a little intimidating. But I really believe that God's message through this entire series is this. You can do this. Somebody look at somebody next to you and say, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. And guess what? You know what else? Nobody else is going to do it. Your generation and you as a person are called by the Lord Jesus to do something that only you can do. So not only can you do it, but nobody else can do it for you. God has called you into a specific work work environment. He has called you into a specific family environment. He has called you into a specific church environment, a spiritual environment, so that you can help participate with God bringing his kingdom to earth. And only you can do that in the place in which God has placed you. Like Mordecai said to Esther in the book of Esther, perhaps it is for just such a time as this that God has brought you here. Except he didn't mention God because Esther doesn't mention God at all. Weird, right? Okay, so um, we're going to be at Titus chapter 3. And uh, as you guys are turning to verse 5, I want to show you a little bit of research here. So this was done by Barna Research Group. They do a lot of um, research on, uh, spiritual, on Christian spirituality. Um, basically, in his book, Faith for Exiles, David Kinneman, who uh, runs Barna Research Group, um, in his book, he talks about how there's basically four classifications of people who identify as Christian. One... <coughs> There's prodigals. These are ex-Christians. This is about 22% of what we call the Christian population. These are people who are raised in a Christian church and they will never come back. Something about the church hurt them. Something burned them out and they, they left it and they're never coming back. Number 30% consists of nomads. These are lapsed Christians. These are the people who show up to church every couple of months. You know, they're not really involved. Yeah, they kind of believe, maybe, sort of, kind of. But Christ doesn't really fully direct their life. And then you have... which are habitual churchgoers. Notice this. Being a habitual churchgoer, though, does not necessarily a disciple make. 
right? You can go to church as a habit, and that's really great, but it doesn't make you right with God to go to church. What makes you right with God is the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf and faith in him and following him. So the last category, and only about 10% of Christian, people who identify as Christians would fall into this category, is resilient disciples. And I love that phrase he uses because a resilient disciple is somebody who's following Jesus and despite the difficulties, despite the different things that come upon them, they're able to get back up. Something knocks you down, you get back up. Your faith is resilient. You are able to continue. And no matter how difficult things get, you're still, it just makes you, to hold, make, makes you hold tighter to the cross. And I believe God wants to call us to be resilient disciples. So on the next, on the next um, slide here, you can see there's sort of a breakdown of what this looks like. Here's um, intimacy. This, the question is then, what builds a resilient disciple? Now, according to research, experiencing intimacy with God is the number one way that you become a, a resilient disciple. Somebody who follows Jesus with passion and doesn't give up when things get hard. Somebody who's faithful to Christ. It happens by experiencing intimacy with God. Look it up here. In Resilient Disciples, almost all of these are 60 to 70%, 80-90% of them say yes to, question, to statements like this. Worship is a lifestyle, not just an event. Jesus has deeply transformed my life. Reading the Bible, this is Bible, typo, makes me feel closer to God. Jesus understands my, what my life is like these days. Uh, regularly experience, regular experience at church is the reality of God's presence. A regular experience of church is guidance for how to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And then talking with Jesus. I'm re-energized when I spend time with Jesus. Jesus speaks to me in a way that is relevant to my life. Listening to God is a big part of my prayer life. And prayer does not make me feel like a formal routine, but a vibrant part of my life. See, these different categories show us that there's a pretty big spectrum of people who claim the name of Christ. The question is, which one are you? Which camp do you fall into? And I think a lot of it has to do with our understanding of God and our understanding and application of the gospel. If you do not fully understand and grasp and utilize the gospel, it can become dead to you. And you can become spiritually dry and empty, and feel like you're far off from God. I'm not saying that you will never experience times where you're feeling difficult, where you're feeling difficulty, or when you're feeling far from God, but I will tell you this. You want to be faithful. There's some things we need to learn and apply, and we're going to find out what some of those things are right here in Titus chapter 3. So I want to remind you guys, this is the goal. We want to be faithful to Jesus. Why do we want to be faithful? Because Jesus has been faithful to us. He will never leave you nor forsake you. His, bur- his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And he accepts anybody who comes to him and says, Lord, forgive me, make me new. He's like, done. Now, let's read Titus 3, 5, 3. Can we, so we, can, we, can we stand for the reading of God's word tonight? Now, we're going to rewind a little bit because we're going to cover some of the verses that we covered last time, but that's okay. They're worth reading again. So, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Let's read together in three. Those words are on the screen. Three, two, one, go. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of of eternal life. 
The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. You are the revealer of all truth. So I ask you to reveal the truth. God, show us the places where we have gaps in our learning about you. Show us the places where we are not, where we're lacking resiliency, where we've, we've suffered a, a spiritual setback because we haven't grasped fully who you are. Reveal yourself in your fullness tonight, God. That's something that only you can do. Only you can make yourself real. That is the work of the Spirit, so we ask you to do that tonight. Jesus, we love you and we exalt you. Lord, let my words be your words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And everyone who trusts in Jesus, say, Amen. Amen. All right, have a seat. I want to suggest something. You want to become a resilient disciple? You want to be somebody who follows Jesus to the, to the end? This is, there's a couple things you need to know. They're very simple. The first one is you need to know what God did for you. And the second thing is you need to know what we do. So first we're going to talk about what God did, and then we're going to talk about what we do. So first of all, so Paul spends a good, uh, these are only a few verses, but there's so much truth packed into these verses that I think it deserves our attention. And he's saying, Titus, I want you to teach with boldness and confidence and authority the things that you believe. So let me remind you for a second. Let me just, Titus, let me just remind you for a second what exactly it is that God has done for us. Number one, the Father... Now, the, what's interesting is this is one of the clearest Trinitarian scriptures you can find. One of the clearest places where we see the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible. Uh, so the, the Bible teaches that God is uh, three persons in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not a concept which is spelled out explicitly in scripture. Nowhere in the Bible will you find the word Trinity or triune. But you will find those three names. And those, are, those names are... At the same time, they are not interchangeable, and yet they are intrinsically related to one another because they all refer to the essence and attributes of God, right? However, they are each distinct. So we need to understand is our view of the Father. How many of you guys have heard of the Trinity before? Or you've heard Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Or at least seen like a priest in a horror movie going, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I cast you out! You know, uh, I don't know if, uh, what your introduction has been to Christianity, but... You need to understand that each person within the Godhead has an intense love for you. And because God loves you, he has done a great number of things for you. The first thing you need to understand is that the Father saved us. The Father saved us. He, Paul's referring to the Father in the Godhead, he saved us. And I love this. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Now, Paul is most likely referring to those who are adhering to the Jewish set of traditions and beliefs. But that goes for anybody who struggles with the religious spirit, honestly. It's like he's saying he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. You got the first thing. I love that he says this first, because one of the first things you have to understand about the gospel, if you want it to transform your life, is this. You want God to transform your life? Understand that he's the one who does the transforming, not you. You ain't good enough to do that. You, you, you don't have the wisdom to do that. You don't have the righteousness. You don't have the perfection. You're, you're not holy. You're only holy because God, you know what the word holy means? It means set apart. The only reason you're holy is because God sets you apart, yo. 
The only reason you are, you are just a sheep and God set you apart for a holy purpose. It's not that you're like, man, I know what I'm doing. He's like, no, I'm a shepherd. You need a shepherd. And Jesus is the good shepherd, amen? And so he is the one who actually draws. And so it says that the Father saves us. That means that God, this is amazing to me. He says something, Paul says something similar in 1 Timothy 1.15. Uh, that God saved us not because of our works. He saved us. You know what this means? Salvation has always been on the heart of the Father. From day one. When God created us, he desired relationship with us. We broke that relationship with him. Read Genesis 3. You'll see where it happens. And ever since then, God was waiting for the perfect time to send this, his son in the likeness in, uh, of man so that he could, by becoming sin, we, so that he might become the, we might become the righteousness of Christ, right? He became sin, or uh, he, became, he who knew no sin became sin, it says in Romans, so that we might, he might, be, we might become the righteousness of Christ. So he became sin, we became God's righteousness. It's a crazy exchange. God did that. The Father did that. And I think sometimes we don't look at the Father as a loving person because you read the Old Testament and you go, well, this is, <laughs> these are the books of the Father. Like God the Father is really angry all the time, like killing people and like opening up the earth and there's fire and like all kinds of crazy stuff, right? But it says that it's according to his own mercy that he saved us. This is right in line with Ephesians 2, 4 that says, by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves, Right? Not by works, so that no one may boast. That it is His mercy. His mercy. You know what mercy is? It's when you have pity on somebody. It's when you look at somebody and go, like, have any of you, has anybody here ever pulled over for an animal and been like, aww? Yeah, okay, so, you, you, you know, you have pity on the animal, right? Because of its pitiful state. You adopted it, and then it became hell in your house. But anyway, um, it's, no, I haven't had that experience, just so you know. But, um, However, you got, that's what the core of mercy is. God looks at you and he has pity because he sees you dead in your sin. He sees you blind to your own flaws. He sees you trying to live your own life and he has mercy on you. And, if you, and just before this, he went through this whole list of sin, sinful issues, right? That we suffer from, right? We are, we are living our days in malice, hated by one another and hating one another. But God had mercy on us. He looked at us and he saw us and he had pity because his heart went out to us. You need to understand this. The Father saved us. Then then we also see the second person of the Godhead at work in verse 5b. He says, the Spirit washed us. Somebody say, washed. Washed. Now, this is the interesting thing. It says, he washed us by the waters of two things, regeneration and renewal. These are very unique words. This is like one of the only places it appears in the entire New Testament. But... What is regeneration? Uh, regeneration, the, this, is, this is the very verse that this entire ministry gets its name from. Regeneration is the process by which the Holy Spirit actually begins to change the desires of your heart and direct them towards God. So a lot of times people will say, I made a decision to follow Jesus. Eh, I mean, yeah, you did. But honestly, it was the Holy Spirit. You might have or felt like you did. But really, it was the Holy Spirit who regenerated your heart because your heart is naturally made of stone. That's the way the prophet Ezekiel called it. But he said, the prophet Ezekiel also said in uh, Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 20, he prophesied of a day when God's people would no longer have a heart of flesh and would not have to adhere to a set of laws written on stone or so they would not have a heart of stone and they would just have to adhere to laws written on a tablet, but rather that they would be given a heart of flesh, a real live beating heart. You know what that means? 
It means you're spiritually dead. Spiritually dead apart from Christ. So you can try to be a good person. You can even go to church and get Holy Ghost goosebumps. That's fine. But you know what? To be transformed, you need your heart regenerated. And this is one of the primary works of the Spirit. He is the one who knows your heart, and so he infiltrates your heart and actually cracks the stone. He's the one who gives you a beating heart of flesh so that you can receive Christ. And this is why uh, John 3, verses uh, 3 through 8, Nicodemus, this Pharisee, he was a teacher of the law. He came to Jesus, right? And he's really cautious about approaching Jesus. He's not sure about what he should share with him, but he's like, hey, uh, you're like a big deal. And so he, he starts asking him these questions about what he's about. And Jesus tells him, you ha- in order to see the kingdom of God, unless you are born again, you'll never see it. And Nicodemus is like, what the deuce? Like, how am I supposed to go back inside my mom? He's like, my mom's super old. My mom's dead. You know, God rest his soul. But why should he's like, so I have to like get back inside my mom's womb and be born again so that I can. And, and what he, he didn't understand is that Jesus is referring to the spirit, the heart of a person, the part of you that's immaterial, that immaterial part of you. There's many different words used throughout scripture, spirit, soul, heart, mind, like there's this immaterial part of you. That whole thing has to be completely changed by God. And that's a miracle that only he can do. It's nothing you can do. And that is what regeneration is. That's why we call this ministry regenerate, because we want people to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's the whole point. We don't want you to just come up here and have a nice Bible study. We want you to be transformed by God. We want to produce resilient disciples who have encountered Jesus and they say, I know he's real because I've experienced him and I've heard his voice and I know that I know that I know that Jesus was dead on Friday and he was dead on Saturday. But on Sunday morning, I know in my heart that he was raised from the dead and I've confessed it with my mouth. That's good news. So the spirit regenerates our hearts. And then I love this. He gives us renewal. The Holy Spirit renews us. Day by day, right? Romans, the only other places is used is in Romans 12 when he says, be renewed or be transformed rather by the renewal of your mind. That's the Holy Spirit at work. He teaches you how to think differently. You only know how to think differently and how to abide by scripture and how to live by God's word. The only way you know how to do that, it's not through head knowledge. It is through the Holy Spirit renewing your mind, being transformed by God. That's the work of the spirit. It's his immediacy. It's his nearness. It is the very breath of God. And we don't realize what a gift this is. But that makes, that, that makes total sense when we look at the next two verses. Because then the next part, it says, the Son, the third person of the Godhead, He made it possible. The Son makes it possible. What did He make possible? First of all, what He made possible was for the Father to pour out His Spirit. In Joel 2.28, we learn that God had always intended to pour out the Holy Spirit on all kinds of people, Right? I will pour out my spirit in those days on all flesh, it says. And then in Acts 2.33, this was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit fell on the first church. And so the Holy Spirit appears. And you guys, we, we take this for granted so much. I've been reading through the Old Testament. And there's so few times that the Holy Spirit fell in power that it's written about very clearly. And it's very clear when somebody has the Holy Spirit because it's like suddenly the Holy Spirit comes on that one person and they prophesy. In Psalm 51, when King David was repenting of his sin of adultery, one of the things he said was, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, why would he say something like that? Because at that time, under that covenant in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come on a person and then he would depart. And then he'd come on another person and then he would depart. 
for that time and that space. He'd come on Samson, right, and give him supernatural strength, and then he'd depart. He came on Moses to give him the law, and then he departed. And so he came on Elijah to perform great miracles, and then he departed, right? But now, through the work of Jesus, because he died in our place for our sins, there is no longer any barrier between us and God. And so the same spirit that prophesied through Jeremiah, that performed miracles through Elisha, that that conquered the promised land through Joshua, who gave supernatural leadership to Deborah, that same spirit is now available to us. And more than that, he's the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and he lives within us. That Holy Spirit is, and that spiritual rebirth is only possible through Jesus Christ because he died so that God could do what he had always wanted. The Father could finally pour out his Spirit on all flesh to make us heirs. Ephesians 1, he adopts us as sons and daughters so that we can share in his inheritance. And what is that inheritance? Well, we, get, we learn a couple of things. Number one, the down payment of that inheritance is the Holy Spirit. And the evidence and fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Those things that begin to take root in us and change as we are transformed from glory to glory. Those things are a down payment of what's to come, which is eternal life in God that's further up and further in forever and ever, drawing ever closer into God's presence. That is good news as well. And we've been justified, he says. We've been justified, just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. We've been justified by faith, not by works, not by works. How many times can I say this? You can't earn your salvation. Not by works, not by works, not by works. According to the hope of eternal life. So I, I really felt in my spirit that I wanted to speak to three classes of people because I think that when we look at the Trinity, we look at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, here's what happens. We tend to get a bad view of one of them, a false view of one of the persons of the Godhead, and then it totally makes your theology just whack. You ever talk to somebody where they like say something that's like theological and you're like, whoa, dude, you're crazy. <laughs> you know, like somebody, you know, obviously there's extreme examples of people who are not quite mentally there. But also like sometimes people say stuff like I always hear people say like usually comes across in like nice Christianese language. Like, but it's sort of like pseudo true where it's like everything happens for a reason. And I'm like, huh? Yeah, sometimes the reason is because you were stupid. Like, I, you know, like, I'm just saying. Like, it's like, some, everything, it's like I crashed my car into a telephone pole last night because I was drunk, but hey, everything happens for a reason. And it's like, yeah, you crashed into a telephone pole because you were drunk, and that's the reason. Like, that is the reason that that happened. But what they're doing is they're twisting Romans 8.28, which says that all things um, come together for good. Right? In all things, God is working together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Right? So we tend to twist the truth like that. And so here's, here's just three things that I really felt the Holy Spirit put on my heart. First of all, regarding the Father. Here's the danger if you don't understand who the Father is. If you don't understand, a lot of times people have this understanding of the Father as a cruel, vindictive, angry old man. He's just like, Argh. I mean, I made humanity, but they messed up so bad and I can't stand it anymore. Nothing's like it was in the old days back in, I remember back in Genesis, back when people followed me and I used to walk in the heat of the day. You know what I mean? I used to walk through the garden and Adam and Eve were fine and now they screwed everything up. And he's just mad about everything, which it makes sense if that's your understanding of God. It totally is like, yeah, he would just like kill a bunch of people randomly, which he doesn't, by the way. But if you don't understand that God has always longed for you to be saved, God the Father, if you don't understand that salvation, that your eternal destiny has always been in his heart, you're going to miss out on who God really is. Secondly, with the son, I think a lot of people see the son as a pushover. 
frankly. Right? Uh, so the father, those who see the father as this cruel, vindictive figure, they become religious and, and you, you become super legalistic and everything becomes about being holy and doing the right thing and you'll never measure up because you, you see God as this person who is setting such a high standard that you're never going to attain to and it becomes hopeless. So, but secondarily, people who see the son as a pushover, they're like, well, Jesus, he's the nice one though. Right, the father, he's the mean one, but Jesus is the nice one who's like, it's okay, like I forgave you, so my dad's not so mad at you. It's the truth, like, right? Where it's like, it's okay, like, like heaven is this house party, and God the father is like, all right, why are all these kids in my house? And Jesus is like, it's okay, I invited him. He's like, oh, okay, fine, you know, like, and Jesus is like this nice pushover, but it's like, oh, Jesus, like, I know that I'm following you, but I'm actually not gonna. I'm gonna go do my own thing. And then when I come back, you're gonna be still happy with me, right? Oh, yeah, I'm happy all the time. It's fine. Go do whatever you want. Go sin. Love ya. Like, you know? And we see Jesus as this total pushover who cares nothing about your health, your spiritual health, who cares nothing about your well being, and who cares nothing about sin or righteousness, which is also untrue. You don't understand that Jesus is the judge. He is a righteous judge, and he is called the king of all kings for a reason. He rules over you. He rules over this world, and that is a good thing. He's the only one who can do it perfectly and justly. And in Revelation, it talks about how God is going to pour out his wrath at the end of time, and you're like, oh man, there it is, God the Father being angry again. But then it also says, I believe this is in Revelation 3, the people are like, oh, woe is us because of the wrath of the, of the one who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus is just as angry at sin as God is. And he was angry enough to do something about it. Thank God. Because he died so that we, it could be paid for. Thirdly, a lot of people see the spirit as like the force. They're just like, you know what I mean? You know, people are, a lot of Christians, like they see the spirit as... Watch, I'm going to levitate Jared's Bible. Come Holy Spirit. You know? And it... Did it move? No. I'm like, I have Holy Spirit power. Uh, so we, we assume that the Holy Spirit is like this like energy field that if we tap into, you know, all the, all, it, is, uh, it surrounds us, it penetrates us, it fills all living things in the galaxy, you know. <laughs> that's, that's how we see the, the Holy Spirit. When in fact, it says that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. A force can't be grieved, a person can be. It says that in Ephesians. So the Spirit is actually a person who desire, and he is the one who actually comes upon you where you feel the nearness of God and you experience him. And, the, and he is the thing that propels you into that deeper discipleship because he makes the presence of God real to, for you. Without the Holy Spirit, you don't have revelation. Without the Holy Spirit, you have no regeneration. Without the Holy Spirit, you have no renewal. You have no sanctification. You have no conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit does those works in us. Now, I don't know why God chooses to divvy up his tasks like he does, but we need to understand his character. That all of these things that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit do are for our benefit and for his glory. And all he makes everything. I like the way that uh, Dr. Tim Keller puts it, that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are in a beautiful dance together. And they're constantly weaving in and out of one another and working together so that all things work together according to his plan. And somehow, the three of them, and as one God, God as, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, united within himself, and yet three distinct persons at the same time, is able to accomplish his purposes in a way that we could never possibly imagine. So here's the thing we have to do. Here's the question. 
Some of you guys are like, wow, like this is really heady. And so, or some of you are like, wow, I'm, I'm just weeping. Sam, you cut me to the core. No, that's not what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show you guys that we get God wrong. We get it wrong. And when we get him wrong, we get his calling wrong. When we get his calling wrong, we get ourselves wrong. And we get ourselves wrong. Then we become useless for the kingdom. Because we get so stuck on ourselves because we assume that God is so mad at me or, or Jesus will just let me do whatever I want and I can just come back to him eventually and I know that I can run off and just be crazy even though it's stupid and unwise. We go, okay, well, yeah, I'll go off and I'll commit a bunch of sexual sin and I'll drink my, my face off but I'll come back because Jesus will forgive me. I'll just sin all the more so that grace may abound. No, says Paul in Romans. Don't do that. Honor Jesus in your heart. And in the Holy Spirit, he's not a force. He's a person. And he wants to envelop you in his love so you can experience the Father and the Son and the Spirit for yourself. He is the revealer of all truth, John 16. So what do we do with all this? Two things Paul gives Titus. Number one, here's what we do. Trust the word, verse 8. Trust it. And of course, this is also reflected in other places like 2 Peter 1.19. Peter says that we have something more sure Peter talks about how he had this personal experience with Jesus and he walked on the mountain and he saw Jesus being transfigured and all that kind of stuff. But he says, you have something even more sure. You're like, oh, what? He's like, you have the prophetic word. He's talking about the Bible. You have this written word, this written word that God created by carrying people along through the Holy Spirit so that you could know his word. Trust the word. Do you trust the word today? And then he says in verse 8b, teach these things. Teach these things. So first, trust the word. Secondly, teach these things. Teach the word. In Mark 3, we find out that Jesus called his apostles to three things. He calls them up on the mountain. He calls them to be with him and to go out and preach and cast out demons. Their job was, number one, intimacy with Christ. Number two, to preach the gospel. And number three, to have spiritual authority wherever they went. And a lot of us are too timid to wield that scepter when God has put it in our hand. So, teach these things. Now, what does it do? It promotes devotion. The word for devotion there is poistastai, which means to manage or rule over. It's used exclusively by Paul. And he's talking about, uh, and it's used a lot in the pastoral epistles. He's, he's talking about, I want you to do this so that it promotes good works. And you're like, ah, wait, wait, uh, I'll raise my hand. I know that we're not saved by good works. I know we're saved by grace. Ha <laughs> ha, woo, 10 points for me, and I get a Sunday school sticker, right? Or an off-brand Oreo cookie because there's no such thing as a church that, like, gives, gives kids real Oreos because churches hate children. Anyway, uh, that's just kidding. That is totally false. Um, so he says, why? Why does he want you, them to devote themselves? He wants, them, he wants believers to devote themselves to do good works. But... It is very important to realize what comes first. The saving work of God comes first. You understand what he did. And then you live your life according to that. But some of you are here and you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit. You're weird. And even that whole thing about the force, you're like, yeah, it still weirds me out a little bit. And I believe that God wants to actually touch you and fill you tonight. And he wants you to experience him. See, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said in 1888, works of righteousness are the fruit of salvation and the root must come before the fruit. This is actually, I, I got a quote up here. Yeah. Uh -huh. Works of salvation 
Uh, so works of righteousness are the fruit of salvation and the root must come before the fruit. The Lord saves his people out of clear, unmixed, undiluted mercy and grace and for no other reason. Just why did you go? Why does God save me? Because he just he just did because he's because God is love. That's why that's why he saved you. And these things, and I love how he ends by saying, these things are excellent and profitable for the people. I want you to teach people, Paul's saying, Titus, I want you to teach people, and I believe God's telling you guys, I am raising you up so that you can instruct people and disciple people not to live lives of righteousness in order to earn God's favor, but because they've already earned God's favor and you have received the Holy Spirit and you've accepted him and you want and you let him work through you, because of that, I want you to encourage people to good works. First, let them get God right, then let them get the good works right. The good works need to spring out of the root that is planted in the gospel of Jesus. And the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son, the second person of the Godhead, came to earth 2,000 years ago as a child, as we celebrate this time of year, so that you might not remain dead in your sins because he would die for those sins in your place so that you could... Just again, he's the one who makes it possible so that he could build a highway from here to the Father and you could cruise right across it by the power of the Spirit. And you would get that down payment of the Spirit and receive it and be filled with him continually until the day that Jesus returns. And you'll stand before him and he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he won't say it because you're righteous. He'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant, just because he loved you and he chose you and he's stoked to have you in his kingdom. So, the last thing I want to conclude with is this. As a teacher, um, I teach English. And uh, as a teacher, we, we dealt with COVID-19. And um, <laughs> so, some of you guys might relate to this. How many of you guys were in school when COVID hit? Okay. So, when COVID hit, like, we had to put everybody online. And nobody knew how to do online learning. It was like nobody had used the internet before, right? Like, oh, my gosh. Like, I can't log on and stuff. It's like funny. You don't have trouble logging on to like Snapchat or whatever, but this is way, yeah, I get that. So we, we know what's really going on here, priorities. But these, so I remember I would set up like video lessons and stuff and I would go on like uh, Google Meets or Zoom or whatever and like I'd get like one or two students who would hang out for like a minute and then just go bam and like just close out. And the problem is after months of doing that, our students came back to school. And when they came back to school, they had what we call learning gaps. And those learning gaps deeply affected their ability to perform at the state level for their grade level, especially in areas like math, right? Because if you don't know arithmetic, you don't know, you can't get to multiplication. You can't get that. You have, I don't know, what comes after multiplication? I'm not a, I'm not a math person. Algebra. Algebra. Okay. So, and then what comes after algebra? Geometry, yeah. Okay, see, you guys don't already know more than I do. Uh, I hate math. Anyway, um, the, and this is why. Because if you miss one, you miss the rest of it. So... Um, that was the thing. It's like, so all these people had learning gaps, but what's funny is like, you look at these, these kids with learning gaps, you see people who are, should be at a certain place, but they aren't there because they had gaps. And I believe there's some gaps even in the room tonight where you've had misunderstandings about who God is, who the father is, who the son is, who the spirit is. And it is actually in some, it is holding you back from intimacy with God. And you go, how come I'm not an on fire for Jesus? How come I'm not like yelling and screaming like a lunatic like Sam Mains? He seems really passionate about God because he's super loud. You don't have to be loud to be passionate, just so you know. Um, but what I am saying is this. I- I've been through a lot of tough times. 
And I've been through a lot of difficulty. I've been through seasons where I've had a lot and I've been through seasons where I've had a little. But my faith has never truly been shaken. And the reason I'm convinced that the reason I have become a a resilient disciple of Jesus is because he has met me and I received him. And it started with me getting to know who God is. If you don't understand who God is, it's going to be hard for you to trust him. And if you can't trust him, how are you supposed to obey him? So here's the questions tonight for our groups, which we'll have to keep you about 15 minutes. Number one, what was confusing about this passage? Number two, where do you see the gospel in this passage? And number three, what are the gaps in your gospel learning? In other words, what are the things about the doctrine of God that you, are, you feel it's like a gap? Where you're like, I feel like I don't, I just don't get that part of God. I don't understand. Let's talk about it and be real, okay? Be, be honest tonight about where are your gospel learning gaps? Where is it that you feel it's, because we can all sit in a group and go, you know, I'm, I've just been feeling distant from God. Okay, why? Because I feel like um, I had a hard week. Okay, and why did you have a hard week? Well, because I, I was really struggling with my finances and I was really stressed out and anxious about that. Why? Because I did, did you have a problem trusting God? Yes, why? Because I don't trust God. Because I don't think he's a good father and I'm not expecting you to go like full deep in this. You're like, because when I was a kid, my dad did this. You know, I don't expect you to go like full like deep psychology on me, but be real, okay? What are the gaps that you have in learning about who God is? And let's pray for God to address those tonight, okay? Let's split up into our groups. We good? Woo! You guys okay? Okay, let's split up into our groups. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from the Regenerate Podcast. And if you enjoyed our content, please feel free to subscribe. If you have any questions or would like to send us feedback, send us an email at regeneratelcsc at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Regenerate, changing the world for Jesus, one person at a time.